Hey, Alex. Hey, Gorsha. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Happy Sunday. Happy Football Sunday. Happy Football Sunday. What a what a glorious time of the year. How is it that you, with that accent of yours, are a fan of American football? And yes. more importantly, you aren't a fan of like the NFL in general. You actually have a team that do. you're a fan of, and you've never lived in the city where that team is based. How, how did that happen? In or the state. Based. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan, um, and I picked the glorious Minnesota Vikings because of the exchange uh, with London and the US with the NFL. So in 2013, um, I had been to a couple games uh, in, in London at Wembley to go watch some NFL, uh, of which I knew very little about. And in one of the games that I went to, the home team was the Vikings. They played the Steelers. Uh-huh. And it was a high-scoring game, a lot of action, a lot of touchdowns, a lot of stuff happening. The Vikings won. Um, everyone was very happy because we were the home, the home side. And from then, I was like, yeah, this purple team is pretty cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this purple team. Then I moved to the U.S. in 2016, and I lived with uh, a guy from Minnesota, and I met all of his Minnesotan friends, and they were like, you know, who do you support in the NFL? And I was like, the Minnesota Vikings. And they were like, of all of the teams, why the Vikings? Uh, but that's that's my affinity, and then because of that, and because of living with a bunch of Minnesotans and them being my best friends in the U.S. at the time, uh, and still as and, and still now. Uh, almost eight years later, I'm a Vikings fan. And last weekend, we went uh, to Green Bay to go watch the Packers-Vikings game. So brand building with the NFL uh, really converted on a, on a long-term play here where I went there and spent a small fortune and a couple chests of gold on drinks and tickets and stuff in the stadium. So, you know, uh, whatever they were doing and whatever they are doing now to increase global viewership, certainly working dude that's an amazing story i uh i think that um the nfl would probably love to use that as like an example of why their multi-year strategy of uh putting games in in london um is uh is and germany it. they had a, a german game this morning uh, wow. at 6 30 a.m that i did not watch who played i think it was the dolphins and the chiefs the dolphins and the chiefs yeah, because Travis yeah. Travis Kelsey got me four points this morning, which is unacceptable, Travis. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, his eye is uh, literally off the ball these days. Off the ball, yeah. So if uh, any NFL uh, marketers listen to our podcast to get um, strategy and tips, uh, feel free to hit me up. I am happy to uh, share consult. my story with you. Consult, yeah, consult, consult, consult for a modest five digits fee. Yeah, that's. That's how it works exactly. here on 30 exactly. minutes CMO. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I uh, I remember I, I I remember also when I was living in London that um, the NFL was there and they were sort of making their initial strides in that direction and seeing people who've never been to the states who have very strong affinities to certain NFL teams. It's just wild how uh, you can build that sort of um, affinity um, through your product but also through things that um they didn't directly own like the madden um 
yeah you know madden games um and people just felt like there was some sort of attachment and uh knew a lot about places like miami or in your case minnesota just because uh they were fans of the of the nfl and i think this uh this example of yours actually ties perfectly into what we wanted to talk about today which is um you know, we've talked about brand building in the past. I think we want to spend a little bit more time today focusing on the fusion of brand marketing and uh, and performance marketing, and really the challenge that a lot of uh, marketers who we talk to and um, who have kind of shared. It's it's not clear to them uh, how you make your investment into brand um, clearly pay off or demonstrably pay off. How do you nurture an Alex from 2013 uh, in such a way that he becomes a loyal and constantly contributing customer who is spending who is spending money and creating advocacy for a decade to come uh, versus yep. just trying to um, extract dollars from him in a point of time and considering that that a success? Yeah, convert convert for a ticket sale in London versus convert for multiple. Ticket sales plus travel plus uh, uh, gear plus jersey plus NFL, um, YouTube TV, red zone subscriptions, etc. Yeah, uh, a life, a life, a lifelong uh, loyalist without the need to pump you with nicotine to uh, to get you addicted. You know how do you how exactly. do you do that? Um, you shared a very interesting um, article with me from HBR Harvard Business Review um, that attempt to actually tackle uh, this very problem, at least the problem around brand. And we wanted to um, walk, kind of talk through a little bit about uh, a little bit of this and um, really tackle the, the sentiment that a lot of marketers uh, kind of share, which is, you know, they say we're great at performance marketing, but our brand sucks and we don't really know what to do about this. We know in the gut that we got to do something about this, but organizationally, how do you build uh, muscle uh, around the two. Um, and I've worked in plenty of companies as have you, uh, or with plenty of companies in our sort of agency days where people talked about the former, mm-hmm. but knew nothing about how to make, make smart investments in there. And therefore they just funneled all of their marketing resources into performance and, um, over time saw, um, issues arising from that. So, Let's talk about this. Let's talk about um, how you set up your brand marketing uh, for success, uh, how you tie yeah. that with the rest of your business outcomes, performance marketing being one of them, but there were other things like shareholder value, obviously revenue in general, and um, use this article from HBR as uh, as a kind of guide through this um, topic. Yeah, so I think... I think that's a, a, a really great uh, way to set this up. I think what I what I took from the the article was the the ability to give the intangibles some tangible uh, across across brands where, like you said, performance is so easy to measure and so easy to see return. How can you set up brand in the same way so that you can point to changes that you make in your marketing strategy? And connect them very directly to changes in revenue, shareholder value, uh, ROAS, etc. So, in in the article, they they say there are four steps um, to be able to do this. So, one is to create and connect brand positioning and activation metrics. 
The next would be to create a composite metric of brand equity. Uh, and, and when we go into this, I, I found this point to be uh, the most valuable for me when it comes to really understanding like what to measure and how to measure it and why it's important to measure these these different ways of uh, the, the function that, sorry, that come together to form brand equity um, and then make brand equity a KPI for performance marketers. And then finally establish the brand link, uh, the brand equity link to revenue and shareholder value. So um, I think the the takeaway is whilst none of this is uh, necessarily new ideas, I think the way that they connected it all together um, to combine them into something that is more impactful, something easier to uh, to review, something easier to put on a slide. Um, and I think uh, the way that they set this up and how you can construct it at your own company um, makes it much easier for, for brand marketers, performance marketers, VPs of marketing to uh, show uh, the value of investment in brand. I think we said this in a previous podcast where brand is um, as important as performance, you know, because if you turn off performance marketing, will people still buy your brand or even care about it? Um, I think this is a, a good way to do that. So shall we jump in? Let's do it. This sounds like a great, uh, great kind of four steps to dissect. So number one, create and connect brand positioning and activation metrics. So here they're saying you, we need to determine the brand position and connect those positioning statements to activation levers. And here uh, there are four things when considering positioning. You've got purpose. What is the brand purpose? Long-term values other than profits. Emotional attributes. So what do you want your customers to associate uh, with you? Um, so that's like cool factor, suave factor, uh, affordability factor, mountaineering factor. Um, then you've got your functional benefits, which is your product features or your features from your of the brand. And then the experiential uh, qualities as well, the intangibles. Um, and then within that, uh, you connect those things to the levers that are the touch points that your customers interact with your brand, the classic five Ps of marketing, product, price, place, people, and promotion. So uh, how I understand it is... You, de you define what you want each of these um, brand positioning statements to be, and then you build that into your five P's of marketing. Um, and then those levers, the, the five P's, the touch points, um, impact your brand in two ways. You've got the direct impact. So build great products, uh, build brand love. If your product is good, people will want to use it and share it. And then you have the indirect, so brand positioning, so focusing on what on making the brand cool as an emotional attribute, um, which is not a thing that you you have to show and tell people. It's not inherent in the in the product itself. So here it's, you need you need to quantify the direct and indirect efforts to capture the interdependencies between positioning and activation and impact on the brand. So. A lot to unpack there. This, honestly, when I was reading it, was the most challenging to understand because it was four points, five points, two points, connect yeah. them all together. But I think uh, if you break it down, uh, you're basically saying, what do you want your brand to be? And then go and do that uh, with your product, uh, your promotion, your price, and then um, measure the direct and inter inter indirect um, causation on your brand. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, I think uh, we, we we probably would benefit from maybe applying this to to examples where um, where this this works um, or where we see this in play. I I'm sure there are, uh, there are many, but when we talk about purpose, emotional attributes, functional benefits, experiential qualities, I mean there there are a lot of um, brands that kind of compete in. Uh, Kind of function within some of these. I think not. I, I we even had like a, uh, cha- a kind of a challenging time before coming coming to um, coming up with examples where uh, we saw brands doing a great job effectively across all f- all four. But one that comes to mind and maybe more from like the years the previous years is Virgin. Um, and I just think about Virgin um, maybe as Virgin Atlantic, the the airline. Although uh, I think they've sort of taken taking this concept and applied it to other businesses that they run. But if, if you remember uh, Richard Branson, when he uh, decided to start the airline, it wasn't a business that he had any experience and he came out of the music industry, um, but he was really inspired by um, Sir Freddie Laker's um, airline, Lake, I think it was called Laker Airways, that offered um, a lo- low-cost way for people to uh, move between uh, the East Coast of the U.S. and, um, and the U.K. And uh, what I think he saw was um, a very stale market where the incumbents uh, provided a very kind of expensive, stodgy and flexible um, service across the Atlantic. And what uh, his purpose uh, for for starting this was to offer a much more affordable, easy kind of, um, you know, fun, uh, enjoyable um, experience uh, for the masses, right? He wanted more people like him, and he was a young guy at the time, to be able to exist in both places when they chose to, and it not be such a huge barrier to go from London to New York or from New York to London. So to me, I think the the purpose of, of Virgin at the time was to connect uh, people across two big markets uh, and make it... Uh, make it super accessible. Um, but he filled it with emotional attributes, right? Like I yeah. think if you think of Virgin, even to this day, even in the ad, in their advertising in the way that it compares maybe to that of uh, other airlines that fly across the Atlantic, it's all about the kind of the perceived glamour and fun and edginess and inclusivity, um, right? And um, they've they've ran with this all from, from the days that they've, they kind of started all the way to today. Uh, they've built this kind of brand on on the strength of how people feel about it. Uh, even if the actual functional piece is um, c- comparable, or maybe in some cases even inferior to what the competition might offer. Um, yeah. Because at the end of the day, like you get on a plane, it's the same plane that everyone else has. Sure, it might have different colors, um, and you fly for six or eight hours and you land and then and then you're sort of done. So why would you choose to fly with Virgin? Um, and you get into some of the into the five P's and sometimes one of the P's price might might be a very important factor. But most of these airlines are quite um, competitive on price. Like there is no, no huge yeah. outliers. So it's got to be... Um, elements of the above uh, that really um, put people into the 
kind of into the orbit of Virgin and, and make them choose us. It's more fun. It corresponds to my lifestyle. It makes makes it easy for me to go from from here to there. Um, so yeah, to me like that I, that's... yeah, if I pick Virgin and I tell people I'm flying Virgin, they know what Virgin is, and therefore I'm associating myself with that kind of brand and that kind of sort of experience. So exactly. I think it's like it's very much taking an extension of you and who you are and what you want to represent to other people and uh, to and borrowing the equity from Virgin to uh, to resonate with that. Yeah, it, it just it just feels like it's um it's a different angle on service in general. And so that's that's their that's kind of their through line. Um, I even remember and I I, I'll, I promise I'll, I'll stop referencing Virgin after this, but um, there was uh, a trip I took a, uh, about a decade ago where I went to Australia and uh, I experienced Virgin brands across my entire trip. I flew on Virgin America from New York to LA. I flew on newly launched Virgin Australia to Sydney. And then we took Virgin Blue, uh, which at the time was a separate entity, all the way up to um, the Gold Coast. And very different products, very different kind of planes. The common factor was the flight attendants were really cool. They all mm -hmm. were empowered to be um, a little bit more hip, a little bit more fun, a little bit more approachable, um, chatty uh, with with the passengers. And that is what I remember even then thinking like, wow, it was an enjoyable experience, not because the seats were great, they weren't, not because the food was great, it wasn't, but because the interaction with, with the flight attendants um, and with the ground staff um, felt like you were, you know, you were about to have a good time. Yeah, yeah. Which I think if you if you can uh, impact one thing, that is a from an airline perspective, that is one thing that you can really impact. Other than putting a bar on the top deck of your seven forty seven, uh, which was right. I never got to experience, um, but does look cool. I did watch James Bond drinking martinis there. Um, all right. So the next the next one, create a composite metric of brand equity. Now this I think was probably the most impactful point that i uh that i took away from this one that i really would like to try and implement um now or in the future um and what 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 they're saying we need to do here is create a composite metric of brand equity um and to do this they use the frmu uh acronym which is familiarity uh no you want people to know and understand your brand beyond just awareness so it's not do you know of this brand, either aided or unaided? It's do you know and understand what this brand stands for? Yep. Regard, so respect, do you respect the brand, which is uh, sort of like a favorability, um, but, but different. Um, meaning, uh, which is the relevance to people's lives and uniqueness, the differentiation uh, customers see between you and other brands. Uh, and they're saying like you do your research, you um, ask these questions in your in your research, whether that's like a brand lift study type question, or you uh, on on uh, social platforms, or if it's like actual go in there and do representative research and pay a research company to do this for you. And you basically combine uh, all of these things into a simple one to seven scale for each each metric, and then take an unweighted average and. That sounds great. I mean, like, it, they go into saying, like, you can actually do more science in this if you really want to, but this works. 
And I think to be able to boil it down to four things to measure on a simple scale and then combine them with unweighted average is a really easy thing for people to do that you could actually impact now. So if you're going to, so then we we build into this um, so that you can really understand from an audience perspective, how these things uh, impact different types of customers. I think uh, what they were saying is if you only focus on your current customers, you're actually missing the points on why people would go to your brand in the first place. So people who don't know about you or uh, former customers and why they left and how you can bring them back, which is probably more important than figuring out why people stick or stick around. So they also measure it by customer types. So you've got loyal customers, the people who come back in, the ones who you haven't churned out. You've got the switches who are um, very price sensitive. So if you look at like ride health services or airlines, or if you're looking at maybe tech in your sort of a lagged and tech, and you're like, well, this phone is the same as that phone, which one is cheaper type thing. Um, uh, then you've got former customers, uh, which are winbacks, prospects, and rejectors. So winbacks are people who will come back. Uh, rejectors are people who are like uh, positively uh, negative about you. Um, and prospects who are people that you um, have spoken to before but haven't uh, have churned and are willing to come back uh, but not win backs. Uh, so that's good. And then unawares, which is the um, people who literally have never heard of you before. I think this is a, I think this is a great, um, great couple of things to again apply an example, like maybe a, a, an example to. And um, you know, you have your kind of CPG products uh, or mm-hmm. brands that uh, people are constantly making decisions about. And I think for those for those brands, it's important to make them the default decision based on all of these things so that when you're going into a grocery store, for instance, you're choosing the same brand of pasta because you, um, you know that it stands for, you know, high quality and kind of perceived high quality. Maybe you, you, Feel, like you feel that it tastes good, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you 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 have those things, and for those for those brand that, brands that play in that kind of constant decision making space, um, this is constant work. This is constant reinforcement, but it's reinforcement that ultimately has to be um, justified through quality and mm-hmm. um, force kind of that continuous uh, readoption. And then you have other brands that we sort of experience maybe on an ongoing basis but we don't make purchase decisions about them so like thinking about cars for uh, you know and applying this to auto brands um if you go through the kind of the the composite metric of brand equity that you talked about familiarity regard meaning and uniqueness car car makers work really really hard at i think the the first line right um because kind of without badging it's just vehicles. It's 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 yeah. all just vehicles. So you have to infuse them with, um, with points of differentiation. And so um, then you go from familiarity to, uh, to regard and, and meaning. And so um, you have brands that really play on um, their uh, safety uh, safety parameters. So like you take Volvo for instance or Toyota, right? Um, they position themselves as um, reliable, solid vehicles uh, that you can use um, as, as as a responsible kind of family 
kind of head of the family or whatever, right? Like you can you can buy that and you know your kids are going to be safe in the back of that Volvo or that Toyota. Um, Toyota's whole thing is about making it easy. Like uh, owning a Toyota is an easy decision. Like it's not going to be glamorous. It's not going to be something where you're going to go and like race on the highway. That's not them. Them is yeah. you go into the dealership, you buy a car and they'll make the purchase easy. But then your relationship with that vehicle and with and with the brand is going to be easy on a going on a go forward basis. And so they infuse like the, the meaning that people take from owning a Toyota is that it's reliable. And for a lot of people, that might be the difference between something like that and maybe like a German car where it's more fun, but they perceive that it's more expensive to fix. It breaks down more because it's stuffed with more tech and that's not mm-hmm. what they want to get into. Right. And so um, I just think about kind of the the phases in people's lives as they go from having a car in college, which might be a pass me down to having their first car as like a single person to then buying one when they start a family um, and, and so and so forth, maybe buying a nicer one when they're in, in a different place financially in their life. How does an automaker brand um, continue to move them across that whole journey? And I think certain brands do a really, really great job of that. Um, Subaru does a great job of that, by the way. Um, yeah. I think uh, a few others do. Um, and then uh, going into uh, what you talked about, the, the different customer types and, and measuring those. Um, it applies to everything we just talked about because there are going to be people who are just like, I don't know, uh, BMW for the rest of my life. I'm going to tattoo this yeah. on my forehead mm-hmm. like this. I'm, I'm just like not going to consider anything else because like I just like live and breathe this brand. But that's not going to be like that's not going to be the case with the majority of the customer base. I feel like people are constantly making decisions based on variables that are being introduced into their lifestyle, whether it's financial, you know, family situations, climate so so forth and so you're going to have switchers constantly it's an opportunity but it's a churn issue as well um i think uh switchers are also probably the people who uh subscription services have top of mind all the time because they are oh, yeah they're mm-hmm. constantly in that mind space um and then yeah the former customers um uh, i think that's a really like I, I love how they break this down as windex prospects and rejectors because we can't treat former customers as people we've lost forever but they're going yeah. to be segmented as well. So I, I, I love this framework because I think um, your kind of composite brand equity has to play across all of these customer types in very, very different ways. Like the truth has to be the truth uh, with every customer, but what you amplify to each one, and like especially for people who are windbacks, they might have had a negative experience, for example, with your brand before. So what you amplify to them might actually be quite a bit different than what your core go-to-market message is for the rest of the market. So I think it's a wonderful, wonderful um, kind of system to um, to evaluate how you uh, go to market with your brand. Yeah, I, I everything I agree with everything you just said and, and how you how you summed it up. I think it's a, a really good way to to break out of just the awareness, favorability, intense metrics that everyone sort of got. Uh, bought it not bought into got told what to measure and I think this actually takes a uh, takes it one step further to 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 figure out the real things that are making people tick and then doing it by customer type um, gives you a lot more insights into what you can then take into your creative and messaging strategy as you start to build out your audience first approach into um, your brand marketing so you're not just building 
one message for everyone and you can actually go and start you can like this is leading into sort of where we're going to end up where we're going to wrap up in, in a bit but it's going to be leading into your audience first approach and how you treat brand marketing more like performance marketing in terms of audience first approach messaging and media buying but not necessarily in the same way that you're going to be doing uh conversion tactics um so you know without giving too much away we can go into the next one uh which i think um is make brand equity a kpi for performance marketers so this one we disagree with a little more this even even just the statements um but before we go into that it's uh, how they were summing it up is if conversion rates go up, but brand equity goes down, why does that happen? Um, do performance ads negatively impact the brand? Um, this could be one of the reasons. Uh, if, brand, if brand equity goes up and conversions rate go down, why does that happen? Are the two initiatives not connected? Are you not connecting your media buying for brands to your media buying for performance? Um, and are you not benefiting from that halo effect? So I think where i had a problem with this is maybe the way that they articulated in the article may not be exactly what they meant but i think give it's it's less about giving uh brand equity kpis to performance marketers uh in 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 a way that when you're running performance advertising you're looking at how your brand equity is impacted and it's more about having performance marketers that understand brand, having the brand and performance teams, if they are uh, separate teams, be more connected on your marketing team so that you're both using the same um, assets, you're, you're understanding the same strategy, you're using the same uh, messaging strategy, you're connected all the way through the funnel so that your brand messaging and creative look and feel matches the bottom of the funnel. Because I've seen places where there are different teams, not only within marketing, but sometimes within different orgs. And I think once you start to split them up that, that far, you've got basically two different teams talking to customers in completely different ways. Uh, so that was my perspective. I know you had another one on this. Well, I think uh, where I probably see, like where I probably see their point uh, also is um, in the fact that both groups have to be um, very um, protective of the custom of, of the potential customers I think what I, th I think what ends up happening a lot is that performance you know performance marketers um, will because they're KPI in this way they will do whatever to extract an outcome a performance yeah. outcome out of an audience and this is really visible for example in uh life cycle marketing newsletters um you will buy yep. something online there will be in many cases no opt-in or opt uh no opt-in selection for their newsletters and all of a sudden within a minute you have a newsletter in your inbox being like, hey, thanks for subscribing to such and such shop. Like, I never subscribe. And then they send you emails about the one thing they sell every single day. And you start yeah. getting frustrated because you know that this is this wasn't the deal. Like, you you made a purchase. Um, but this, uh, this approach that you're just going to keep shoving um, performance uh, content 
into someone's inbox day in and day out, hoping to extract an incremental sale, that is destructive to the work that the brand, um, the brand marketing team has been doing because you're actively um, degrading the relationship between the brand um, and the customer. So I think that's what they probably talk about in um, in saying that uh, performance marketers have to be KPI to this. They cannot uh, deploy tactics at the kind of volume that would yeah. uh, drive the customer away that you work uh, hard to win in the first place through your brand advertising or, or at least kind of brought them into your pool. But where I think we find differences here with what they are saying is that um, the outcome that performance marketers ultimately have to be um, working towards is going to be different. It is going to be driving that conversion. It is going to be um, getting a, comer a commercial transaction in place. And so uh, there was a great example, I think, that they used um, in uh, actually using an airline as, as, as an example where they've, um, they've segmented the national, the U.S. audience uh, across different markets, uh, the airline did. And they saw that like in certain markets, there there was an opportunity to go after prospects because people were open to um, having choice, but they just didn't have choice yet. Um, others, other markets were more about winbacks. Other markets were more about uh, loyalty, right? And so the way that brand marketers approached the kind of this challenge was to deploy um, kind of different tactics within each market so that, for example, in Hawaii, where the airline had uh, identified an opportunity to grow, uh, there would be more messaging about, um, you know, all of the reasons why this airline should, should be in the consideration set. Uh, you're widening the kind of, you're, you're widening the audience pool for your performance marketers to then go and tap into, and they absolutely should then be doing that. Like their goal shouldn't be to keep furthering uh, that brand message, it's to harvest the demand um, that that uh, brand work has, uh, has uh, delivered. And so if if kind of the the awareness and consideration uh, went from 4.5% to 6% in Hawaii for that airline, which is like, what, 40, 50% increase, then you should have a corresponding increase in your perform performance marketing spend, and you should expect performance outcomes to be somewhat you know, tracking uh, the increase yeah. in um, in that awareness and consideration. So I do think that they have to be KPI'd uh, to different outcomes ultimately, but yeah. I don't think that you can, I like how you said, like they have to sit together and they have to come, come like develop joint playbooks, which say that we're going to uh, be the custodians of our uh, potential customers first and foremost, and we're not going yeah. to do anything on the performance marketing side that's going to jeopardize the work that our brand uh, brand building efforts um, accomplish. And when you do that, that's amazing. And when you don't do that, like you essentially shoot yourself in both feet because customers <laughs> don't believe anything that you stand for. And then you uh, try to trade in uh, long-term uh, kind of long-term relationships with like very short-term gains. Yeah, 100%. That is exactly what they should have written instead of what they wrote. Yeah, well, that's, why, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're making, we're making HBR better. Uh, no, I, th but I think, I think, yeah, every, I think your, your, your last point there of um, not jeopardizing the brand building work that brand marketers are doing is, is, is 100% um, right. And you've definitely seen uh, companies um, I think TikTok is a good example of this, where brand and performance literally sit in different countries, in different in different orgs, 
and they have wildly different KPIs and the performance teams are doing whatever they can to get that conversion and day one retention. And you've got the brand teams who are trying to do much more than just like get that install. And I think that that for me is one of the one of the companies that spent a bunch of money trying to do both, but not not together. Yeah. So the the final point uh, in your in your tour to um, attributing uh, brand equity and uh, uh, brand building dollars to revenue is is to connect your brands to revenue and shareholder value, and and that was kind of it. That was kind of all they said, um, and it reminded me of the Shit's Creek episode where Moira Rose explains to David how to fold it in, and I I thought I may have missed something here. But it really was just like you just connect it. You just connect the brands to revenue, and then and then that was the end of the step. So I don't really have much. Um, I don't really have much to discuss other than maybe they could have given us more direction. Uh, but I think that was it. I think as we as we talked about the kind of talked about the exam the the examples for the theorems that they were putting forward. If you execute yeah. on if you execute on this right, then you are going to see uh, an increase in in revenues. Um, I think all brands these days think about more than just revenues on a kind of long term basis. They, you know, for better or worse, uh, have to take positions on um, social issues, climate issues, those sorts of things, um, and so shareholder value. I think. It's 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 a very nebulous concept to me because um, there's even been a challenge in the last kind of year year and a half from from the from eminent thought leaders like uh, Jamie Dimon I believe from uh, from um, J P Morgan where it's like it's not shareholder value it's stakeholder value uh, and stakeholders mm-hmm. are all the people who are in the kind of in that brand's universe including customers and potential future customers and our environment and uh, the cities that we live in. Um, so not necessarily just those who hold uh, stock and shares. I I kind of like that uh, approach a little bit more than just uh, saying it needs to be connected to shareholder value because shareholder value is basically an ongoing increase in revenues at, at all costs. Um, yeah. I think stakeholder value allows you to um, ebb and flow that piece a little bit more, and like you don't have to constantly chase growth if if that growth is going to be at the expense of your company's uh, long term position in the marketplace. So, like as an example, um, you know, do you cons- do you as a company continue to like say you're a beverage a beverage company of some sort, even like a startup? Um, do you continue to just pump out more and more and more beverages and plastic bottles, or do you want to kind of limit that at some point and like really focus your investment um, for the next couple of years in a more sustainable uh, container so that like as as growth con- you know to set yourself up for sustainable growth where sustainability is more than just your ability to churn out more and more products like do your stakeholders want you to uh, be a more responsible brand or do you want to just chase um, profits and revenues because if you do that in the way that I think Patagonia does so well. You can afford yeah. to close your stores um, on uh, Black Friday, or in, or like, or donate all of the proceeds to environmental causes, and like really have equity in those um, through those actions, and not be seen as performative in the way that so many brands I think demonstrated they are, especially 
post Black Lives Matter, where a whole bunch of them are walking back a lot of the commitments that uh, that they made in the wake of uh, you know, all those protests, right? So um, that to me feels a lot more right than uh, just focusing on shareholder value. Uh, but of course, you have to uh, connect your business, like your marketing has to be in the service of business outcomes. So yeah, folding it in uh, as you as as, mm. as your gr- a great example uh, states. Um, is um, I think doesn't do this enough service. I, we both have worked in many organizations. Um, I find it distressing that so many times marketing departments, all the way to kind of the leadership, are setting goals that are disconnected from commercial outcomes and sort of overall business outcomes that the brand um, needs to achieve, and that is just setting yourself up for failure because then you're your your whole like reason to exist i think is in doubt as 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 a group within within that company so yeah. of course it has to be tied to those yeah if you're not if you're building plans that don't impact uh your business goals or they're not tied or they're not built with your business unit partners in mind then what are you doing um and i feel like that is a uh, yeah i think as you're talking through it it maybe it clicked to me that it was less about the connecting it up in more of a linear way but connecting the outcomes of the previous three points uh and showing the increase in brand um so you have to get the trust in your leadership to change your setup initially to then be able to point to the outcomes and say we changed this and look at the change in the brand it's always going to be extremely difficult um and i think this is where it would it will would fall down like it does right now when uh, there are so many external factors that will in, influence this. Like, did you change the product? Was there a cultural headwind? Um, was there a shift in uh, in the market that your product exists in? So it's going to be difficult nonetheless. But if you can get the um, FRMU metrics set up well and you're tracking these things and you're tracking these against customers and then you are making significant change or well, changes in your uh, revenue, then I think you are able to to be able to make the case that your brand building exercises are more targeted, are more efficient, and therefore are, are driving that revenue increase. So I think, uh, yeah, I, uh, I I know at the beginning we said we struggled to come up with an example of of a brand that that's done this well for many many years. Um, actually, one that um, has done this well and uh, continues to do this well is Birkenstocks. And I think you can, yeah. t- you can take this whole framework, and I uh, ask our listeners to maybe do this, and just apply this to um, to Birkenstocks, and just see how that checks out um, across each one of these things. Familiarity, we all know what they are. Regard, we we know they stand for quality. Meaning, we know like we know what Birkenstocks like, what their sort of cultural DNA is, and what makes them unique. Like at the end of the day, they're just shoes, like it's footwear, but yeah. it's footwear that uh, has managed to stand apart from um, all of its competition and not on, for just a few years, but for decades. Um, and so they went, uh, they recently IPO'd in the last couple of weeks. Um, and their IPO was, I think, uh, to the tune of like six or $8 billion valuation. That's how you wow. connect that to shareholder value. That's how you connect that to revenue because it's it's a footwear company. Like Allbirds is a footwear company, but Allbirds IPO tanked because it's, uh, you know, it doesn't have, all of those aspects that, that that Birkenstocks do, right? And so, uh, just think think about that. I mean, it's you know, 
stock price is not the indicator of success necessarily. But I think when you do this decade in and decade out, and you're and you're able to get these kinds of um, commercial results, and people still love yeah. you, I think that is this um, kind of this theory put in practice and prove that it's success, it's it's successful. That's a great example to to tie that together. I want to end on the uh, taking taking the words from the HBR article, but maybe simplifying them a bit. And you you t- you did touch on this, but like the how it works. If you're going to like implement this, well, maybe once you have done the implementation, but like how you can then action upon it. Um, and I think this for me really tied it together nicely that you can see how as a marketer you could then take this framework to make real life decisions. So. Um, how it works is the ability to target brand dollars to specific lagging brand equity metrics to improve brand equity within specific areas needed without increasing the overall budget. So taking the, taking the dollars, making them work more efficiently, knowing that by putting it into these brand equity metrics, you're going to make significant improvements um, because you know that this is going to improve your overall revenue goals or revenue targets. Um, And then, and then because we're measuring audience by a region uh, where they're able to connect the brand equity to the persona types, so the switches, the winbacks, um, and specific audiences within that re- region um, by forecasted revenue, uh, they're able to put those brand dollars into those brand equity metrics into the uh, regions that those audience types are going to be most impacted by. So like, don't spend money on people who are going to who are going to you know, fly your service anyway, spend money on people who you need to change their opinion of your brand. So that's, here's like, that's, that's specifically that airline example. But I, th- I, I think what it really yeah. means is like you segment your audiences because they're not monolithic and your approach to what you want to do with each one of them is, is going to be based on what the opportunity is there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so exactly that. So if you look at your region and you see that you have a bunch of winbacks um, that lag in, uh, in your, uh, let's see, familiarity, uh, spend money on that. And then you can and segment everything up so you can be more precise with your with your dollars, which is really a performance marketing way of segmenting and targeting and and measuring. But you're not measuring your sales, you're measuring these brand equity uh, metrics. And then yeah, set the goals at the regional or city level that rather than national level to, to see the impact. So your goal is not a national thing to do one thing. It's not increase national awareness by X percent or increase favorability in your national winbacks by X percent. It's in this city, in San Diego, in San Francisco, in Anchorage, I need to do this. And I need to tell them this, and that's going to impact the brand equity here. And if you can break all of it out like that, you can be much more targeted with your um, with your uh, media dollars, your creative messaging, and your media strategy. And you're going to have much more success in convincing leadership on why brand building matters. I I, I think that's great. I think that a lot of a lot of people we've talked to um, fear brand because they feel like basically it's always a national play it's always mass market it's always like the super bowl you know and they don't have the dollars for this and that's incorrect like that's patently false your brand dollars can be deployed 
regionally or to specific audience segments, like for example, Hispanic speaking audience in uh, in the U.S. is a is a subset of the national audience, but it's not the full national audience, right? Like your messaging there is going to um, land differently, and you have to you can approach it in that sort of way. And then it's it's about it's kind of it, it's having the stomach for it to be a sustained effort. It doesn't mean that it has to be always on indefinitely all the time, or that it has to be. Uh, flight it evenly throughout the year. There could be key pillars for your for your brand um, to to speak up uh, during the year, um, and you constantly measure. And if you feel like you've achieved uh, that outcome, uh, you might need to, you might you might have the flexibility to to, to to dial back on that and just maintain and continue to measure, but maintain um, your uh, the levels you've achieved, unless the business demands that you kind of continue to grow, and then like you obviously uh, reinvest. But it's um, it's not a national play, and it's not indefinite. Uh, but it is a sustained effort, and it has to be uh, relevant to the regions or the kinds of people that you're speaking to. And it has to have a through line into your performance marketing, because if your performance marketing then goes into market with like wildly different everything, then you've wasted the brand dollars efforts because people aren't going to connect the dots on those two things. Like just take a page out of what McDonald's does, like their like their brand building and their kind of tactical, you know, like buy our breakfast messaging. It's connected through creative through jingles through through the whole thing please just like it's 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 not science it's i mean it, it is science but it's not rocket science it's like it's been done it's been done successfully like you don't have to be afraid of that i mean if you yeah if you don't connect it all through you're wasting all the money so yeah. make it make it connect this is great man I think we've uh, I think we've unpacked it. Uh, hopefully, this was useful. Yeah. This is useful to me. I uh, you know we think about these things and we talk about these things, but having be kind of like structured this way, I think it's great. And I'm glad that we found areas that we agree in with this article. But like there were some some things that we thought uh, could be expanded upon. Uh, it was good to discuss that with you. Yeah, and I think I will be taking uh, a lot of this and trying to implement that in my day to day life as a. Uh, as a marketer, uh, whether now or in the future, but I think the brand equity uh, framework, I think, is one thing that will stick with me for a while. Look out for Alex's Swiss watches. <laughs> the the new brand coming to market exactly. in the city near coming. you. All right, my friend. Well, this is great talking to you. Enjoy the rest of this uh, football Sunday, uh, and we'll check in later. Sounds good. Uh, good to good chat. I'll speak to you soon.